uh, today I want to jump back into the book of Titus. We've been working uh, the summer through the book of Titus verse by verse, and uh, we're all the way to chapter 2. So we're just at a flying pace here. But if you would, just open your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're going to look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, and uh, you can use the, the, the Bible in the pew rack right in front of you, and you can turn to page 938. If you personally don't own a Bible or you don't have access to one very often, uh, take the one from the pew um, with you at home. I'd rather you just uh, have that as a gift from us. And, uh, and read that throughout the week. It's far better to have a Bible in your hands daily than for it to just collect dust uh, in the pew. As we look at this passage today, I mean, just kind of remind you a little bit. This is, this is Paul writing to a young pastor named Titus that he has sent to the island of Crete. Uh, Crete's a small island about 146 miles across, and, uh, and they're establishing the church. The gospel had been established there about a decade before. But now Paul is saying, you know, as, uh, as Christians are, are being made, discipleship's not taking place, and the, and the church hasn't really been solidified. So in chapter 1, they put a huge focus on the leadership of the church, and that's the elders of the church to, to put some things into order uh, and put the rest of the church in order uh, of what remains. There were some in the church that were kind of going left and right with different theological teachings and dividing households, and so they needed some godly uh, leadership established. In chapter 2, it takes a turn and kind of brings the whole congregation involved. And it says, listen, if you're an older man, you ought to be living in such a way that is commendable and also pouring into some young men that you can disciple and, and bring up. If you're an older lady, you ought to be taking some younger ladies aside and, and, and just loving on them and showing them the ways of God from the scriptures. And that all of us are a family that helps each other uh, become disciples that are growing and reproducing. And this church is going to have an outward impact in the community, but if you can't do it within your own family, how in the world are you going to disciple people outside the walls of this church? So you need to make sure you're established in the faith well. And in this passage, it's going to focus on the term grace, the kind of grace that we have, the grace that sustains us, the grace that, that takes us forward. And I've titled this message, A Church Filled with Grace. How many of you live by grace? That you know you don't deserve the, the life you've been given? That fa the, the Father has allowed you to be born into the freedoms of this country. Perhaps he's placed you in a family that loved you and supported you. And even if some of those things weren't right, just think about what you could have been born into. Just think about what could have happened had the grace of God not entered your life. We live by grace. The, the unmerited favor of God. Let us never take for granted the grace that God has given us. Sometimes we complain about our lives. It's not, you know, it's usually in a comparison mode. You look over at somebody else's life, why is that happening for them? It doesn't happen to me. But what you're doing is discounting all the grace gifts God has given you. And so today, I, I want us to focus on what it means to be a church that's filled with grace. Grace is a significant word in the scriptures. And we've been singing Amazing Grace by John Newton for, for, for centuries. An incredible song. Uh, many of the songs, if you were to pick up your hymnal or just look through Spotify on, on Christian songs, you would see a lot of songs have either the title uh, with grace in it or, or just some of the words. I mean, we just sang a song just a few moments ago. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest upon his unchanging 
grace. And it is unchanging. His grace doesn't change just because he's, you know, in a different mood or because you're doing something different. No, God is consistent, the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are many churches spotted throughout the land that have the term grace in their name. And I just pray that they have grace if they're going to put it on the, on the sign. But every church ought to have the characteristic of grace. Because we have a God of grace who has extended grace to us. And how could we not receive that grace and ex express that to other people who are needing some grace? Just in the book of John, chapter 1, listen to these words. In verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, and this Son is full of grace and truth. In verse 16, it says, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. In verse 17, it goes on, it says, From the law, or for the law was given uh, through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that the Father extended grace to us through uh, the, the presentation of the Son of God to us. The Son of God who is eternal but took on flesh out of grace. We didn't deserve his, his attention. We didn't deserve his forgiveness. But he put on flesh in order to come into this world to live a holy, perfect life. To die a gruesome death that we deserved. And then extend to us the grace of salvation. In eternal life. These words of grace I, I would commend to you. Just take some time in the New Testament. Just read every passage in the New Testament as I did this last week. That has the word grace and look at its context. In Acts chapter 15 verse 11 it says we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Jonathan Edwards' uh, statement on what grace is. Listen to these words. Grace is but glory begun. Let me say that again. Grace is but glory begun. And then he says, And glory is but grace perfected. Grace is glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. Grace begins our life. And grace carries us through our life. And grace brings us to glory, and that's grace perfected. I want you to put your eyeballs on the page. Titus chapter 2. Look at verse 11 through 14. Let me read it in its entirety, and then we're going to uh, walk through this slowly. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. From this we can get, gather many teachings that Paul has for us, but I'm going to focus on three primary observations in this text. And the first one is this, if you're taking notes. Grace redeems us. 
You'll see the word grace in the passage. You'll also see the, re, uh, the word redeems. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You know, in the book of Titus, if you were to look at these 46, I think it's 46 verses, 45 verses in this, these three chapters, uh, grace is huge in its theme. And salvation is emphasized multiple times. It says in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 that God is our Savior. It also says that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in chapter 2, verse 13. In chapter 3, it says Jesus Christ, our Savior. Salvation is a huge emphasis in the book of Titus. And salvation is merely the, the, the culmination of grace entering to our lives as grace has appeared. And what does grace bring? It brings salvation. It brings hope. You notice these words here, for the grace. Grace is an unmerited favor. It's a gift, something you do not earn, something you cannot uh, uh, manipulate and bring toward yourself. No, God is not obligated in any way to give us anything that we don't deserve. He is obligated to give us what we do deserve. And if you're anything like me, we deserve much of what the, the Romans chapter 1 says is the wrath of God, the discipline, the punishment, the things that are offensive to our Creator. We have lived for ourselves. We deserve that. But out of a great uh, eternal love, He says, I'm not going to just give you what you deserve. Actually, I'm going to give my Son what you deserve, and I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. And that is a gift of grace and how we all need that. For the grace, the unmerited favor of God. You notice right after, uh, of the grace of God, and you can't miss that. Grace is from something much higher than what the world can provide. This is not the world's grace. There are times in this world where we don't get what we deserve. How many of you have ever run a red light and you didn't get a ticket? All right, it's, it's confession time. All right. In Atlanta, that stopped being uh, uh, possible because they put all these red light cameras everywhere. And I am guilty of getting one of those tickets in the mail that says, you've run a red light. And I'm telling you, it wasn't my fault. I'm just telling you. <laughs> the truck that was turning left in front of me slowed down as it went from green to yellow to red. You ever had that situation? You're in the middle of the thing and they won't move? But all right, so I got it. But, you know, they didn't send me, hey, here's a picture. We just wanted you to know, but we're going to give you a grace gift today. Keep your $85. No, they didn't give me that. But there are times perhaps you've been pulled over. Perhaps something has taken place and, and you deserve something. And they said, you know what? I'm just going to give you a warning. You know, we noticed something in your job. You're, I, I, you know, we could penalize you on this, but this time we're just going to just give you the warning and, and just correct it. That's a grace gift. But you realize the penalty of sin is so much more severe than just getting an $85 ticket. What God gives you is grace. It's much higher than what the world ever will give. You know, the, the, the world it may have some gifts in it, but I tell you what, it, there's nothing comparable to the grace of God that comes into your life who could squash you like a bug, but treat you like a child who loves you, that draws you close. And, and here it says that, that for the grace of God, and then it says these words, has appeared. 
I don't want you to miss these two words. It has appeared. See, grace from God wasn't sought after by us. It, it, it wasn't something that we earned, something that we saw out there, oh, let me do something to, to, to get this. It appeared to us when we were sinners, Christ was doing something for us. It wasn't something we said, hey, God, we've got a plan. We're kind of in a mess. Would you kind of create a way for us to, to, to escape this sinful nature? And God goes, huh, let me think about that. Yeah, let's see what I can do. Absolutely not. It was in our own sin. We weren't seeking him. In his grace, he was seeking us. And he had salvation and grace appear to us. He approached us. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. It, it, you know, here's the thing. And how many of you were ever born physically into this world? And I doubt you just were, you know, like uh, evolution is just kind of a blob that was created into a baby and someone drove by the side of the road and saw you out there and felt, you know, bad for you. No, you were birthed, whether it was into a great family or a struggling family, you were birthed, and I guarantee you somebody that you don't even remember perhaps. There was a nurse, there was a mom, somebody who took you and loved you and provided for you when you didn't even know what was going on. Someone loved you first before you ever knew how to love them back. And this is what takes place in the grace of God. You don't know who God is. You didn't know what was going on. All you know is that this God began to love you and then he opened your eyes and you began to say, wow. I'm loved far more than I ever imagined. And I've been forgiven for far more than I'll ever recognize. This is a good God who, who has grace appear to us. And this grace that appears brings salvation. I want you to notice this doesn't say condemnation. When God appears, he comes with love. I always think of the lady who, uh, who uh, the woman at the well, as she's out there getting water and the Son of God approaches her. First off, he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan and that would never take place in that culture. And then he begins to talk with her in a loving way, direct but loving. And, and he's trying to just show her his love and grace to her. And when she recognizes, wow, he knows everything about my life and he still loves me. Man, it changes your whole perspective that all of us are women at the well. All of us are, are, are sinners that, that have done a lot of things in our lives that are not, uh, uh, not acceptable to the Father. But even in the midst of our sin, he comes to us to bring salvation, not condemnation. Condemnation is what we deserve. Salvation is a gift of grace from a loving Father who is not obligated but chooses to love even the most unlovely. Notice this word, bringing salvation. What does it say in the next three words? For a few people from Texas. Because Texans are the gift of God. Just kidding. A few people from West Virginia. Even them can be saved. No, what does it say? I want to hear it out loud. This is an interactive opportunity. How many people? This is not universalism, by the way. It doesn't mean all people are going to be saved, but there is a universal invitation, and what people do with it makes all the difference. 
Some people think, well, God will have so much grace that even those who never acknowledge him, those who never repent of their sins, those who live like the devil, think that on the day they die, God will just blow the whistle, say, everybody out of the pool, you're all coming home with me. And that is not true. That is not true. Grace is a gift that is not deserved, but it has to be acknowledged and surrendered to. And so we pray for all people to hear the gospel. Uh, we pray for all people to understand it, that their eyes would be opened, their heart would be opened by the Holy Spirit. But there is a response by every individual who's going to go to heaven that they acknowledge it, surrender to him, and receive the grace. All people. This is not just a first century invitation. This is a, uh, an invitation for all generations. And we who've received that not only have the obligation, but really the privilege of sharing that grace message to people who don't yet know it. How in the world could we receive it? Is that me popping? Or is that Blaine playing with his gun somewhere? How in the world could you receive a grace gift knowing you didn't deserve it and not share it with somebody who is in desperate need of it? You know, sometimes we get to the point where perhaps we've been saved for a while or, or sins that we don't necessarily struggle with, the temptations we don't struggle with, then we see it in other people and we begin to make judgments. Oh, look at them. I would never do that. And we start to, to put people on the outside of the reach of God and his grace. But if God were to put a spotlight on your life and expose every thought, every deed, everything you've done in public and in private to the whole world. If we sat here this morning and said, all right, Tad, I'm going to pick on you because you're fairly new. Uh, maybe I can get away with this. And we're going to display all of Tad's life up here. Everything that's gone through his mind, even in the last week when I told him to do something and he had some mind you know, thoughts. Right, everything exposed. How many of you would want your movie displayed for the whole world? You'd want an edited version like what you give on Facebook. But the reality is God knows it all. And he still loves you and brings you close. So therefore, when we see other people who still struggle, we ought to be praying for them. And that the, the Lord that saved us is the, the same Lord who can break through the hardness of their heart and draw them close by his same grace. We ought to be broken hearted when someone doesn't understand the grace of God rather than judgmental. If salvation appeared to us, let us not bring condemnation to someone else. Let's bring grace. How did salvation of grace appear? It was more than Jesus on a world tour waving and signing autographs. When, when his grace appeared, it was much more than just texting out something or, or changing his Facebook status and, and maybe a picture on his profile. It was more than just sitting there rioting in the streets or protesting or vandalizing. It was more than standing on a street corner with a large sign saying, the end is near. It's more than bringing a food truck and passing out some hot meals. When grace appeared, I want you to notice in verse 14 what it says. When the grace of God appeared, it appeared in a person who desired to redeem us. Look at verse 14 right at the beginning. It says, who gave himself Talking about Jesus. When, when this salvation 
appeared. This grace appeared. It appeared in Jesus who gave himself for us. And he didn't just appear to be seen. He appeared to redeem. He came to, to, to rescue those who could not rescue themselves. To redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem us to set free by paying a price. In, uh, on the island of Crete, they were very familiar with slavery. And that to, to redeem, that phrase, to redeem, mean, uh, one third, by the way, one third of uh, the island of Crete were, were slaves. In order to get out of slavery, someone had to pay a price to redeem you from the ownership of someone. And that was a high price to pay. The reality is when Paul uses this language, he's speaking to Christians who may or may not be slaves in the world, but they are all slaves to sin. They're in bondage trying to break out and they're unable to. And the only way to break out is someone pays the price to redeem you from the grip of sin that has a hold of you that will not let go. There's only one who can break that grip and it's Jesus Christ. He appeared out of grace, willing to give himself the penalty that you deserved, he paid the price on himself and redeemed you. In Hebrews 9, 22, it says, And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That we deserve that, but he was willing to take his own life, shedding of his own blood to forgive our sin. When Christ appeared, grace appeared. When grace appeared, death took place for sinners on behalf of of the forgiveness that we deserved. And the grace that redeems us is the grace that redeems all who trust in Jesus. There's no other way. Listen, Jesus paid the price for our slavery to sin. First century Cretans knew this and they understood this language. And I think sometimes we forget how, how sin so separates us from God. And had Christ not entered this world and took on the penalty, none of us would have the privilege of going to heaven to see Jesus. A high price to be paid, but he was willing to step in and do this by grace. You know, the beauty of grace is that grace redeems us and it removes the penalty of our sin. There is a penalty of our sin. And when Christ breaks that and he pays that, there is no more penalty for sin. That it's been paid in full. Jesus said on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Annually among the Jews, they would have to sacrifice for the sins of the people. When Jesus died, it was a once for all payment for all who would trust in him. All right, let's look at the, the point number two. Oh, good, I still have time. I forget to look at the clock sometimes. And I knew I was uh, uh, a little worried. I'm going, I haven't preached in like three weeks. And when that happens, you know, you kind of build up a lot of stuff. I'm thinking, maybe they'll go till two, but maybe not. All right, so grace redeems us. And I don't want to miss that or, or fly through that point. I really wanted to emphasize that. But I, I want you to notice the second thing, and it's really starting in verse 12. There's a grace that reforms us changes us. Uh, use the, 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 the word reform. We, we sang uh, the oldest hymn in the hymn book today, by the way. Oftentimes people say, we never sing any hymns. We just sing the oldest hymn in the hymn book. Anybody know what it was? 
A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Written by Martin Luther. If you don't know Martin Luther, then you need to study up on Martin Luther. He was obviously a Lutheran. He hated the term Lutheran. But he was basically the father of the Protestant Reformation. Had he not stepped in and brought truth to the gospel again, we'd all be Catholic and just uh, uh, paying the Pope some money in order to get out of purgatory. All right, so Martin Luther understood what it meant to say, we're saved by grace, not by works. So he brought that back to the church, focused on that. You know, a mighty fortress is our God, not our pope, not, not some institution, not some councils. It's God who's great. And so he writes this hymn, and he it brings in the Protestant Reformation. All right, to reform what was. He never desired to start a whole new movement. He just started to, he wanted to reform the Catholic Church to say, let's get back to the, to the truth versus the things that we've gone off on the sides with that are not true at all. We need to be reformed. And here, I see in the scripture what God does with us. Uh, he, he redeems us, and what he does, he begins to reform. He doesn't say, you know what, you're fine, but I'm going to move you over here, I'm going to do something else. No, he says, I'm going to take what you are, And I'm going to begin to transform you. I'm going to reform you into the image of my son. You know, it would be great when we get saved. I I wish this was true, but God has has shown me this is not how it is for most people. And it's certainly not true for me. The day you're, you're introduced to Jesus and you realize he forgives you, you're like, oh, yes. Thank you, Father, for giving me. I'm going to live for you forever. Everything's going to be wonderful and great, and I'll never sin again. And you go to sleep, and then you get up the next day, and you're like, man, I'm complaining about the day because I had to get up so early. And I'm thinking this thought, I'm thinking that thought. I'm thinking, golly, what happened to my salvation? Uh, He just forgave me. He gave me all this great gift of salvation. What am I, why am I still struggling with my life and, and, and the way I'm living? Here's one of the things. He forgives you the penalty of your sin, but there's a process of reforming you to eradicate the discipline that you've been living by of sin. How many of you still struggle a little bit or a whole lot with some sin issues, some temptation in your life? Absolutely. And some of you have been Christians for a long time and you still have some temptation on some things. Remember one guy, uh, John MacArthur's church, 90 years old, and he had a, a struggle with the temptation when he was early on, and John asked him, you know, so when did you finally, you know, get rid of that temptation? You never struggled with that again. And this guy was 90. He says, I'll let you know when it happens. Now, by the way, temptation is not sin. What you do with that temptation is. And hopefully, the more you feed on the Word of God, the more you live out holiness, the more you put on righteousness, and, and you remove the thoughts, the distractions, the, the influence of the sin nature that you've had, the less that temptation will have a hold on you. And so God's goal here, and I want you to see it in verse 12, that he redeems you, but he did not eradicate all the sin temptation. You actually have, and I want you to understand this, when you are born into this world, you have a sinful nature. Everything about you is sinful. There's not an innocent part about you. And God steps in and says, I'm going to redeem you. And he does. And he places his Holy Spirit in you. But he did not remove the sin nature from you. This is why you still struggle. You have a holy nature now. And you have a sinful nature that you were born with. Now, by the grace of God, God does not allow the sinful nature to carry on with you when you leave this earth. When you get to heaven, guess what you'll have? Only a holy nature. 
But while you're on this planet, from the point of your salvation, you have two natures in you. And which one's going to win out? The one you feed, the one you focus on. You've got the Holy Spirit who is able to conquer every temptation. And you depend upon him, you pray, you seek God's wisdom, and you will win out over those temptations. But in your weakness, if you don't call out to him, you will give in to the nature that you've lived with all your life. But let me tell you, you can win the fight because you have the Holy Spirit who will fight your battles for you. You just got to trust him. So in this, in this re reforming process, look at verse 12. It says that as he's, he's you know, uh, salvation has, uh, has appeared to us, it's training us. Do you see these words? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Drop down to verse 14, right at the tail end, it says, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's go back and look at these words. Training us. How many of you train for anything? You get a new job, you're training for it. You're in school, you're training to be able to do something. All right. Some of you like to exercise. I'm thankful for you. Enjoy. All right. So you're training. How many of you have ever run a 5K or a marathon? How many of you have at least run to the mailbox and back? All right. So you're training for something. All right. Well, in your Christian life, you weren't just rescued, redeemed, and said, now have a nice life. God says, now you're in a training program. Now you're going to put some effort. What you could not do before the Holy Spirit got you, you are able to do by his strength. And it doesn't mean you're transformed overnight. It means on a daily basis. You live by his mercies. And you're going to grow into holiness. There's a training process. And you notice this training has an ING. What does that indicate typically? It's a continual process. You know, I played high school football and baseball. I could have played in college. I was offered that. I didn't want to do that because those practices were killing me when I was in high school. Why would I do that in college? And I wanted to go into ministry. And I said, oh, the church will train me enough. And, and there'll be a lot of exercise there. But training is so important. It's a continual process of what's known as sanctification. And you notice this training process has a negative and a positive. Look at this. The negative is your training to renounce. What is renounce? I apologize for all that. I'm trying not to even move anymore. And this keeps happening. But we'll get a new cord and we'll figure this out. But I have to have the microphone because if you're at home, nobody hears you if it doesn't come through the microphone. Did you know that? I know that when I was at home and I was listening going, I can't hear. All right, so. To renounce, what is to renounce? To formally declare one's abandonment. How many of you say, well, I'm going to train for a 5K. Give me a bowl of ice cream. There are some things during training you have to renounce. I cannot do this. I cannot participate in that. Even good things, sometimes we have to say no to when we're in training for something that is right. We have to renounce. I'm not going to move anymore. To formally renounce, declare one's abandonment. And this says very clearly, as believers, if we've been redeemed by the grace of Christ, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And why do we have to renounce it? Because it's the very thing we've been embracing. 
how we've been living. And then the positive is, you don't just uh, clean out the house of the demons because if you don't fill it with what is right, they'll just return. So if you're going to flush out the, 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 the worldly passions and ungodliness, then you need to replace it with what? To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Your passions and pursuit for Christ must far exceed anything formally that you pursued while you were living in sin. A life changed by grace will show evidence of a life changed by grace. Like E. Stanley Jones, who said, Grace is free, but once it has taken a hold of you, you're bound to the giver of grace for life. And as you put to death the world's grip on you, and you put on a grace-filled life, it'll become evident that God is redeeming you and he's reforming you. Here's the goal. Look at verse 14 at the tail end again. The goal of this training of renouncing and living, renouncing that which is of the world and living like uh, God has created you to live, he says, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You notice here that he is purifying you as you surrender to him. All that ungodliness, you're not going to be able to overcome on your own. Through the Holy Spirit and the grace of Christ, daily, he's purifying you. He's also personalizing you. You notice he's purifying for himself a people, for his own possession. You are no longer your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, we glorify God with our bodies, with our minds, with our heart, everything. It's no longer about who you are. It's about whose you are. You ever thought about that in this whole world? Everybody's asking the question, well, who are you? And who, why do you identify? And it's not about who I am because less of me, more of him is really the goal. Whose am I? Who is who, who owns me? Who do I surrender to? Who do I live for? When Christ is done for me, more than I deserve... I understand he's purifying for himself, me, as his own possession. Not only is he purifying, he's personalizing me. He's producing in me a zealousness for holiness, which looks like him. I mentioned just a moment ago, grace redeems us, which removes the penalty of our sin. Here is where grace reforms us, and it removes the power of the sin that we have. Here's lastly. In verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope. When you're waiting for something, that means something is still yet to come. Grace redeems us. That can be a past tense thing once you've uh, accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, received his grace and his forgiveness for your sins. And, and the, the grace redeeming us, or, uh, uh, reforming us, is a continual process that we're in, in right now. But there is something coming. For those who are in Christ, there's another grace gift coming. And I call this grace rewards us. Now, don't uh, misunderstand the language. Rewards are typically something you've earned. But here's a reward that you didn't deserve. You didn't run the 400 you know, meter and win the gold. God gave you the gold without you even doing anything but believing in him. And look at what's happening. 
waiting for our blessed hope. Here's another appearing, by the way, that's different than what we just read in verse 11. It says the appearing of the, what does it say in your text? What's appearing in verse 13? Glory. What was appearing in verse 11? Grace. So grace came to us, it's appeared to us, which brings us to salvation. But we haven't seen the full consummation of that grace in glory. Glory's coming. As great as it is to see the appearing of Jesus in grace, that he'll save us. There's something even greater coming. There's glory coming. And when it appears, it'll take over the whole world. Jesus, when he comes back, he's not coming in a, in a little uh, a place where shepherds will hang out. He's coming and he's taken over. Nobody will miss the glory of Christ when he comes back. And this is what we're, we're, we're waiting for. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of what? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First time he came, grace appeared. The next time he comes, glory will appear. Are you ready to see the appearing of the glory of Christ? Because when he appears in all of his glory, those who trust him will be celebrating and will join him in that. But those who've rejected, who have shunned his grace offer, will not see him in his glory in a positive way. They will see their maker and they will get what they deserve rather than the grace that he was offering. When I was younger and struggling in life and various things and, and, and didn't understand a whole lot of what was going on, and, and, and I was like, man, where, where is God in all of this? And by the grace of God, he sent me somebody who invited me to a church that shared the grace of Christ. And I understood that though life may be a struggle and there may be things that happen that we'll never understand this side of heaven, that there's still a God who holds on to you and provides for you far more than you'll ever imagine. That was a grace gift. And that what he has promised to me, he hasn't fulfilled all of his promises for me, but he has been faithful to fulfill all those he has chosen to at this point. And if he has been faithful and never missed it, I can trust his promises that are still to come. That he is coming back for all of those who trust him. I have not yet reached perfection this side of heaven. But I know by the grace of Christ, when I cling to him, he will perfect me. And he will direct me. And he will bring me into his presence in his great time. The amazing offer of God's grace is still available to us today. His grace is needed to save us. It's also needed to sustain us every single day. How many of you need God's grace today as much as you needed it 10 years ago, 15 years ago? When you wake up in the morning, oh, I can only live by your grace. I deserve so much. But God, you will provide for us what you desire. I look back over some of these verses in grace. I want you to listen to these words. One, you probably know in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This was not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. As I stand before God, it's not based on my works. It's based on the works of Christ. I just surrender and trust him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, Paul says, that it should leave me. But he said to me, 
even in the midst of your pain right now, even in the midst of your struggle, my grace is sufficient for you. How many of you need that reminder today? My grace is sufficient for you. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. While we're on this planet and we still struggle, we realize there's a God of grace who invited us into relationship. But as we continue to still struggle, find temptation or hardships or, or challenges or unexpected things, let us not run from the God of grace. Let us run to him, to the throne of grace, who can help us in our time of need.